Welcome to Philosophy at the Movies, a podcast where we discuss themes in the history of philosophy through the medium of films. I'm Alex Baker, and joining me as always... Sean Baker. And today's topic is the 2020 film, The Empty Man. So before we start doing the plot of this film, because this movie came out in October, and but net, just because I one of the reasons why I wanted to do this is because this move, film has been getting a lot of word of mouth lately, and people have been talking about it a lot. So I wanted to you know strike while the iron is hot, so <laughs> to speak. So we are we'll be spoiling this movie, and I know not a lot of people have seen it yet because it did terrible at the box office. So I just wanted to give that, so we will be spoiling it. Yeah. So if you want, don't want to be spoiled, watch the film first, and then listen to the show. But anyway, so the film, for the first 20-something minutes of the film, the prologue, it takes place in 1995. There's a group of American hikers who are at the Bhutan Valley. Yes. Yes. and um, Him, The Himalayas. The Himalayas. And we see that it's it's an area where there's a a, a Buddhist uh, temple, and we actually, for a brief period, see some Buddhist monks traveling by them as they're making their way into uh, uh, the mountain range that they are exploring. Yes, and as they cross a bridge, we even see three bells, and I forget that has various yeah. meaning in Buddhist religion. Yeah. And anyway, as they're hiking along a mountain, one of them hears this whistling sound. Nobody else hears it, but as he goes to investigate, he falls into this crevice. And they go, and one of them goes after him, and he looks at him, and he's complete doesn't look complete any bruised at all, even though he fell. And he's yeah. sitting in a the lotus position, yeah, lotus position. When he sees this H.R. Geiger esque uh, <laughs> yeah. creature on the wall, looks like something out of Alien. It's, yeah, he's got his hands clamped together like this. Yeah, it almost looks like an angel. There's, he's connected to the wall, and he's also got multiple arms like Shiva. Yes, and they're and he's and he's very and the guy is very petrified. And even as he's trying to see if he's okay, he says, "If you touch me, you will die." Yeah, he doesn't heed this warning. He gets him up, but the guy's in complete shock. They they wander around. They find a little cabin. Yeah, and they're heading there because a storm is about to come out. And he's in the guy's condition and is getting worse. Yes, he's catatonic basically. And the the other I can't remember his friend's name. The other male in the party. We should say it's two couples, right? Yes. Uh, the guy that's in catatonia and his girlfriend, and then. His male friend. I'm sorry, I'm not remembering the guy's yeah. name. And his, and his, his girlfriend. girlfriend. And the poor guy's having to carry this guy as they're trying to make their way back out. And they're very concerned for him. Obviously, they want to get medical attention to him. And they do find this cabin. Yeah. And so they go there. And he's, his state's getting worse. And But then because he found this little whistle thing that was in the crevice. And the guy's girlfriend, she blows on it. And as she does that, the, for a brief second, the cabin changes. And you yeah. see all these different things on it. And But you just see it for a second, and it goes back to normal. Yeah. And then the next day, we see she... They go out to look to see if there's any way... If the storm's getting bad, so they, the couple goes out to see if they can find any way out of here. And while this woman's by herself, she sees like this tattered figure... And it gets closer and it gets closer and then it starts running towards her and she locks the door 
and then they open it again, and then it's the couple, and it's like, what the heck were you doing? You yeah, were, they yeah. were knocking on the door. Let us in. What, yeah. what, what are you doing? Yeah, and that, that figure, he, he kind of looks like a, uh, in several movies, uh, he, he kind of appears to be, he's black, right, and, and uh, shadowy, and very much looks like, a, in a lot of movies, we've seen death personified yes. in that way. Grim Reaper or anything yeah, like that. Right. And so the, then as they're sleeping that night, the catatonic man awakes, and I think he's whispering in his girlfriend's ear, and you yeah. hear this creepy sound. He goes, he goes Yeah, and I can tell you right now, if the if 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 the purpose of that annoying sound is to drive somebody crazy so that they will do something uh, insane and horrible it's ideally suited that drove me nuts hearing that <laughs> multiple, multiple times, times throughout the movie, in this film but then that's the third day they're they're gonna have they figure they have to go back to the bridge to, they have to get back there because the storm's not getting any better and as they're doing that the woman still got the knife because there was a knife in the uh, cabin you know the one guy's just having out he's screaming at him like oh you're just being selfish but meanwhile the girlfriend of the catatonic guy she grabs a knife she stabs both of the other couple and yeah. threw them overboard and then she jumps off the bridge and so yep. it's just the guy by himself yes and that's the prologue for the movie which yeah. goes on for 25, 25 minutes and then it gives you the opening credits tile of the empty man yes and i actually kind of liked that the, I, the, that, the, that 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 uh, of the whole film, I think that's my favorite section of the film. Yeah, it's very effective on its own just as a short film. If like, there was no plot after that, like, you could submit this for a short film competition. It would do very well. Yeah. And so then we fought, it takes place 23 years later in Missouri. And we meet this guy, James. Yeah. And he was, you know, he's your almost very cliched cop with a past. Right. Yeah. And he's even he's 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 retired and he's yeah. running his own little security shop where he sells mace and keys and guns and yeah. personal safety devices. Yeah. And while he's hanging out by himself, because we learned he had a tragedy, his wife and her and his young son died in a car accident. He's by himself, but this girl visits him, and she's uh, the daughter of a friend of his. Yeah. And. She sort of tells him that I've, you know, it's ever I've learned all the meaning of life now. Every, you know, I've learned what everything means. And, yeah, you know, it's very kind of vague stuff. And then the ne- the next day she goes missing, and all the thing only hint you have on the wall she wrote in the blood. The empty man made me do it. Yeah, and they find out it's dog blood. As mm-hmm. a matter of fact, and then they. She starts interviewing her friends and finds out that three nights ago they were hanging out by a bridge and there's this urban legend that if you're hanging out by a bridge at night and there's an empty bottle, if you blow in it, the empty man will come. And it's basically the first day you'll hear him, the second day you'll see him, and the third day he takes you. Yes. And so they go searching for that and then all her friends go missing and he's looking for them. And then he finds out that they all killed themselves by the bridge, except her. Yeah. And he also finds out all of them were related to this thing called the Pontifex Institute. Yes. And he goes and investigates that, and it's he thinks it's this New Age religion, and he always explains the ridiculousness of it. He's like, well, I've seen it all before. I've lived in San Francisco. Yeah. And, you know, uh, I know before, there, there are little hints that there's literature in the teenager's room from the Pontifex Institute. And there's, there's 
the, the little monologue she gives him there at the beginning. Um, uh, I, I, I was thinking the same thing. I think this is kind of warmed over um, new age metaphysics, mm-hmm. um, including, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, just so we got to get through the story first. Yeah, it's a um, lot of story in this movie. Yeah, it, with, with, with some overlay, overlay of relatively kind of interesting if not a metaphysical concept, at least a, a, some kind of an analogy that they played with in this film. But we'll get to that. Yeah. And so anyway, he starts, he goes to their head office headquarters and investigates them. He even goes, starts asking a couple people if they've seen her around. They all have vaguely, they don't know. He gets more investigative and he sees these people acting strange. Like there's these people in that same pose and they're looking at this black, blank, blank black sheet or yeah. wall canvas thing yeah and as he, he doesn't you don't know that he doesn't notice because he doesn't know but you see a painting of that cabin that was there yes and as he's researching them online there's a brief little mention of Bhutan valley as he's mentioned the pontifex institute so yes you don't know what exactly that means and as he investigates he sees one of the guys and he tells him that she she is there she's being taken to this other place this camp you know because she's considered special so he investigates that and he goes and he sees that he goes in this little cabin area and he finds all these files of all the all the, the her friends and yep. even there's one on him but he originally looks at it and just sees there's nothing in it yet. yeah and then he goes over and he sees this creepy tape of this apparently this guy and he is yeah it's, it says manifestation manifestation number 14 or was it 14 or because yeah. he's not, here's our first spoiler he's manifestation 13 mm-hmm. so I'm Thinking, I'll have to look at the film again, but uh, I thought it was earlier than that because it's on. I might have gotten it wrong. The old fashioned VHS tape, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> Nothing. Yeah, it's a typical creepy VHS tape in a horror film. <laughs> yeah. But it, it is. He's just like he's got blood. He's cut himself blood, and he paints this image on the wall of the same creature we yes. see, the empty man. Yes. And he even looks at the wall, and it's still on the wall. Yes. And as he goes along further, he sees this creepy, you know bonfire ritual and everyone's dancing around and eventually the lights go out and then they look at him yeah. and then he runs there's this big chase scene he escapes yep and then he gets the, the the mother of the daughter that's gone missing he has to try to ha- have her hide and then at this point we reveal that he was having an affair with her while his children his wife and his daughter died in the car accident yeah yeah and he, start, he tries to get the police involved, but they tell him, you know, you broke in, you stole these documents, there's nothing we can do here, you probably even harmed the investigation. Yep. But now, because at some point he blew into the bottle, just like the urban legend, and he he first he hears it in his house the first time, the second time he comes towards him. Yeah, and also, the second time that same black figure yeah. is crouched uh, down the hallway, and he looks at it, and all of a sudden it gets up and starts running toward yeah. him, yeah. And then the you know gets into day three, he he follows some of the cult members. They go to this hospital and they they bow down and pray to this one person in a comatose state. Yeah. And then he questions him, and it real we realize that that guy in the comatose state was the hiker in that prologue. Yes. And then this is when the movie gets. Really crazy. <laughs> he, he goes back there, and now so, he sees you know, the the daughter. You know, this is like phase three, right? Yeah, yeah. Phase two was more or less a traditional kind of horror film mm-hmm. of the uh, 80s or 90s genre where it's, you know, teenagers being chased by the, the, the 
urban uh, legend kind of urban thing. legend kind of thing. Now we're going into phase three, which is uh, to coin a phrase for any DC comic fans out there, bizarro world. Yes, yes. and he see, and because she now he looks at another file they have on him, and they have all of these things in his life, even things yes. like how in the world, like at the very beginning of the movie, he yeah. uses his coupon birthday coupon at a restaurant they have that coupon yeah they have everything about him it's very detailed very detailed he's finding this file uh, it's the second time he's explored this area of the pontifex institute right mm-hmm. and he's finding this file uh, it's kind of interesting that he's happened upon it by the way in that mm-hmm. immense archive uh, that's kind of telling, I think. Um, but it, you're right; it has every single detail of his life. Um, There's even yeah. pictures of him yeah. naked in this chair because he has because he has all these nightmares of this empty chair and like this creepy cellar area. Yes, and there's a picture of him in that cellar area, and he's looks like completely hypnotized. Yes, and even they look at these newspaper clippings, and because one of the things you hear him say multiple times is saying that I grew up in San Francisco. There's a newspaper headline called, called "Growing Up in San Francisco," yeah, or in Hate Ashbury in yeah. particular. Yeah. Once again, hearkening back to his hilarious description of this uh, this cult, at least on the appearance, on the surface of it, it seems like what does he say? Hippie New Age, hippie yes. new, hippie New Age bull stuff. Yeah, yeah. and. <laughs> If that and then there's even another news clipping of this other cop whose wife and daughter died in a car accident, but it wasn't him. It's a picture of some other guy. Yes, and then it's basically because he finds the daughter and she reveals that. Get ready for this big twist <laughs> that he he is a manifestation of the empty man because this cult needs somebody to receive. Yeah, for I've, their their other higher being, their higher power, whatever yeah. it is, they're communicating yeah. with. They need somebody else. They had this thing for five hundred years, but now that they had this guy for the last twenty five years, but he's dying. He they, they yeah. can't use his power anymore. So they figured they need to create somebody. So he, James, is a creation. All of these memories he's had are not real. Yeah, he, they were implanted in him to create because they need somebody to be the vessel. So at the very end of the movie. He somehow he looks like he somewhat accepted this. He kills the guy in the comatose state, and then the splatter on the wall is exactly like the empty man statue. Yeah, and they bow down to him and they say, "We transmit, you receive." I left some things out because I don't want to make the whole. <laughs> I've already gone on for almost ten minutes about this, but but that's, that's it. Just the story. So yeah, I, it's a. I like this movie. I don't know if you do. I I don't know if I. I honestly don't know if I do either. Um, but I, I, I kind of liked the way it turned out because uh, as I was mentioning earlier, I think they've kind of taken it up and toyed with, uh, an analogy or at least an interesting, um, metaphysical point of view. Um, it's, it's, it's relayed several times in the film that, uh, there's some sort of a connection between, uh, incantations, the use of language, rep- rep- repetition, and that somehow or another being able to bring into being, um, uh, as they use the word manifest, um, uh, relatively, uh, or I should put it this way, distinct beings, right? Uh, and so you're wondering exactly how it could be the case. And, and there's a, a concept they borrow from Buddhism, uh, the, the notion of a tulpa. T-U-L-P-A. And the idea behind that 
is that um, through very disciplined and repetitious and uh, ritualistic kinds of um, uh, chanting and things like that and, and, and visualization and meditation, uh, it, it, will, it will be possible to bring into being quasi-autonomous beings with which you can interact and they're more or less like persons. So I thought, well, that's interesting. And I thought, is it complete BS? And then I actually had to look this up. And then, no, this this is actually a part of um, uh, uh, a Buddhist belief system, some of them at any rate. Uh, and so it, got, it gets you thinking, well, okay, um, what would have to be the case metaphysically for this to actually be possible? It sounds crazy, right? How are you going to bring a person into being by having a, a group of people um, do the necessary enchanta- enchantations and visualizations and so forth. It sounds, to use the phrase, like uh, um, crazy, hippie, new age stuff, yeah. right? Um, but there's hints throughout the film, particularly in the little speech the guy gives at the Pontifex Institute, right? There's hints there that uh, there's kind of a metaphysics lurking behind this story. And the analogy I think that helps explain it is an analogy with multiple personality disorder. And I think if you combine that with uh, uh, considering a worldview called panpsychism, it kind of makes sense, believe it or not. Um, Panpsychism, according to that point, uh, according to that theory, um, Everything, simplest way to put it, is everything that exists is mind. Okay? And uh, if that is the case, um, you can combine that with some of the things that that man says when he's giving his lecture and when he's talking with James after the lecture. Uh, You can combine these two things in a way that kind of makes sense of it. Um, They talk a lot about... uh, the notion of distinctions actually not ultimately being real. Remember that? Mm-hmm. Um, now, if it is the case that everything is mind, right? And the panpsychist view is correct, and certain uh, views of uh, Buddhist views are, are correct, um, uh, that the uh, distinctions and differences are ultimately really illusory and there's really only one basic reality, right? Well, then you can see how it might be possible for quasi-distinctions to r- arise in these things that aren't ultimately real but sure look uh, convincing as if they were real. And the analogy that, once again, that kind of rose to mind for me was the formation of multiple personalities and people that have gone through trauma usually is typically why it happens. There's an interesting connection with trauma in this film. Um, the trauma of this, this loss of the life here uh, in what in James's case, although ultimately he's not a real being and there's really no real history with him, but we're hint, we're, we're given hints with the, the first guy um, that is on that trek that he's had a past He's an actual human being, so to speak, that's actually been born and, and, and raised on planet Earth, unlike James ultimately, I think, is. Um, and it, apparently, for some reason, you need that trauma in order to channel this other reality. I don't want to necessarily say it's higher, 
because morally it's repugnant. It seems like the sole mission of this spirit, right, that's channeling through these people is to get other, get the teenagers to kill each other and cause murder and mayhem. That seems to be the only thing. Um, but anyway, um, the, the trauma causes distinct personalities to form that are in very interesting ways, not aware of each other's existence, except as, except as, uh, in a way that we would be normally be aware of other genuine, genuine other persons. You have a third person knowledge of them and you have to talk with them or, or interact with them in some other way, um, as you would another person. And, and, you know, multiple personalities very often, uh, people will say, um, that um, after that has formed the diff- different personalities, that's how they become aware of each other. Just in that same way, there are, as it were, third-person hints that they exist, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, if the entire universe is a big, gigantic mind, so to speak, then it, some kind of mechanism like that might account for... Uh, it's differentiating itself into multiple parts, including multiple persons. And that seems to be something behind the metaphysics of the Pontifex Institute. Yes. And what, what you talked about eventually, like the, you know, their overall goal is like making, you know, this mass suicide. What I'm questioning the fact is how much of this movie is even real? Because, because he calls, um, forget the woman's name but the nora nora he calls nora telling her that he's found her daughter yeah she does not know who he is yeah so if that's the case then all the interactions he's had with her aren't real right which also brings into question does anything so were those suicides did those suicides even happen did any of this even happen or was it all made up in his head and it was this was just all that was going on in his head as he was hiding in this chair, and now he's out of that chair, out of that cellar area, and it was just right after that where he goes and kills the guy in the comatose state to yeah. become the empty man. Uh, yeah, it's a good question with regard to the whole storyline with the daughter and her friends. But I think we have pretty good reason to believe the daughter is actually real because she claims to be the one that has created him, right? Or at least given him his backstory his history it's very interesting i mean apparently what's occurred here is they've they've managed to manage to make him manifest and bring him into existence as this semi-autonomous person uh, preloaded with a complete memory of his entire lifetime um, brought to mind a famous kind of snarky thought experiment that bertrand russell came up with when he was considering uh, um, the fact that uh, given a certain set of uh, data, there's an indeterminate uh, sized family of possible theories that will be consistent with it. And what's interesting about them is that they will be inconsistent with each other in radical ways. So he he has us imagine... um, uh, asks you if it's possible logically possible and then you don't need much for logical possibility it just has to be conceivable right whether it's logically possible that just right now you came into existence with a uh, complete set of uh, memories of your lifetime 
um, a complete set of beliefs about the history of Earth, the history of the United States, etc., etc., etc. He asks you, is it possible that that is really what's going on right now? You, you probably say, not very. But the key point here is he says, it's conceivable. It could be that way. You really have no way of being able to determine whether it is or not. You know, we're not going to lose sleep over the possibility, but it is a logical possibility. So they've taken that idea and applied it to James. He's he's born. He lasts three days, right? And they keep, he, just to be clear, you know, he's, he gets a day one, day two, Very day three. With yes. Like Monday, Tuesday. Yeah. So he's been created and she's helped create him. I think in many ways she's kind of a, uh, along with the Pontifex people that she's working with, they're, they're kind of a... Uh, a, a strange version of a deity here. They've created this guy. And uh, with the purpose, apparently, of allowing him to be this kind of uh, receiver uh, for transmissions from that other realm. Um, you know, and I guess the idea is the more people you have working on the manifestation, uh, the quicker you can bring it about. And apparently the reason they're doing a manifestation instead of using a real person like they did the first time with the poor hiker guy is um, it's hard to find people that are sufficiently traumatized, I think, to be adequate channels. So she goes, hey, why don't we create, uh, create a tulpa and tailor his past in such a way that he's got this terrible guilt and this terrible fear of discovery or something, right? And he'll be an ideal channel. We can get it done a lot quicker. And apparently they've all agreed to do this. And then they pulled the switch, so to speak. And here he comes and she manipulates him all the way down the road until she gets him into that hospital. And then she explains what's going on. And then, because I do like this movie, but one of the other confusing parts of the film, I would say, is that also at that very end... It's right as he's having all the flashbacks. Well, we get this different set of flashbacks that change the reality because we see a funeral, not for him, because it was mentioned earlier that Nora lost her husband. Yeah. He's at the funeral, and I believe the picture we see at the funeral is of the hiker, the guy who died, the hiker who was in the comatose state. And then it, it does the usual because he's with his son, and the son is blowing into the beer bottle or the soda bottle or whatever it was. Yeah. And then it has also the flashbacks of him having the affair and then his uh, wife and daughter, wife and son in the car accident. So that also confused me because yeah, yeah. so is that part real or is this like flashing forward now? Who and the, the heck knows? Because like that was a part <laughs> of the movie where I was going, huh? Well, uh, yeah, and there's a lot of huh going on in this film, period. And the thing that made me kind of go, huh, uh, was... The features of the story that um, f struck you as unrealistic in terms of just natural events. Um, several times, the insects stop making noise. Did you notice that? Yeah, especially during the bonfire ritual. Yeah. And then uh, during all three segments of the film, you see just briefly what I call video glitches. Just that... that quick kind of shifting and distortion of the of, of that looks like a some kind of video malfunction it happens several times 
Um, and that made me think, oh, gee whiz, they're, you know, they're, they're going to end up showing us that this is some kind of a very sophisticated computer simulation at the end, but it never goes that direction, you know? Um, it's just an odd film, and, it, you know, you know they're purposefully crafting it to be somewhat ambiguous and confusing at the end, um, in, in the way you mentioned that inconsistent uh, ending with the, the funeral, um, and also making it very difficult to determine what's uh, actually happening in the real world and what was, in, in, in essence, planted in, in this uh, tulpa's <laughs> mind. Um, I, it, it, I, you know, you can sketch it in general terms. I think the, the daughter is real, and she's kind of the mastermind behind this thing, even more so than that speaker, I think. And uh, it was apparently her idea to create the tulpa, and give him that false um, uh, background. And she relied on what she knew, her own life, her own background, her own mom, <laughs> mm -hmm. which just shows how far gone she is in this cult. She's willing to, to do this. Um, and uh, not quite abuse her mom. We don't really know if the mom ever knows what's going on, right? Um, it was because, like, he calls her, and the big reveal is she doesn't know. She who has he no is. idea. So he, her who daughter is. may not be missing. She might have just stepped out for a couple of yeah, hours, and that right. was it. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. All right. So, anything else you want to bring up before we start wrapping up? Well, uh, other uh, visually, I like the film. Um, I, I think they did a good job with that, and the, the sound, and giving you these little hints that things were not as they seemed from the yeah. beginning. And I also did like the soundtrack and its use of uh, Buddhist chanting, which is very eerie to begin with. And it does a good job of really building that atmosphere and creating the tension as you go through it. Now, having said that, I kind of wish it was a little shorter. Yeah, it did drag like, a little yeah, bit. I think that's even people who like the movie feel that it does drag. And I will agree. Like if this was hour 40, hour 50. It would be, it would really bump up even more in my grade, but yeah, yeah. And as you mentioned, the director, this I mean, the kind of the look, and um, this was directed by David Pryor. And interesting about him is this is his debut film, but he worked many years before working on home video releases for DVDs, mainly with David Fincher. Like he worked on the DVD release for Fight Club, and he, if you watch like a Fight Club DVD, if you watch anything about like behind the scenes and all that stuff, he was the guy behind that. Oh. And this film is very Fincher esque. Like even that awesome scene when it's you know matching cut from the map right to where he's driving. Yeah, and even that creepy kind of electronic. Yes. Home sound. That's completely David Fincher. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it, and it harkens back to Kubrick, too, with, uh, I, at least I thought, of um, The Shining. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy at the Movies. You can find this podcast and more podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center by visiting the Radio Stockdale page at usna.edu. This program is hosted by Radio Stockdale. There you can also listen to their podcasts such as Ethics and the Naval Warrior and The Duel. If you like this podcast, you might be interested in my other podcast, Real Sound. For each episode, I dedicate to classic movie soundtracks. That can be found online at soundofcinema.automatic.com. So until next time, I'm Alex Baker. And I'm Sean Baker. Saying, to